This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, the number one business school in the nation, according to this week's Business Week. And to hear more about what they're doing here at Stanford, we caught up with Yossi Feinberg, Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Stanford Graduate School of Business, and talked about their entrepreneurship programs. Tell us how entrepreneurship figures into the Stanford curriculum. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful to have you here, and obviously uh, it's great to be ranked number one. Number one. You won. Thank you so much. Uh, entrepreneurship is, is for us not only a field. It's really something that we think about holistically as uh, something that captures a mindset of creating new values. So it applies in every organization, in every leadership role. And I think this is what we teach and this is what we believe in, that our, our graduates will go on and, and create new value that will better all of us. Well, Dean Feinberg, I think Jason and I, we spend so much time and everybody at Bloomberg talking about kind of the world being disrupted, so many industries being disrupted, and that includes education. You guys have had to adapt, right, and change programs to meet the growing needs of companies that are out there. Absolutely. I, I think that it's not only that uh, traditional industries are being disrupted, it's the rate of disruption that's accelerating. So you have to be extremely nimble. And I think management education is no different. It has to adapt quickly. What have you had to change specifically so, like in the last couple of years? Yeah, so it's a great question. Uh, and, and, and this is the tricky part. There are certain things that you want to keep. You want to have a scientific, rigorous basis for everything that you teach. But at the same time, you want to make sure that as analytics becomes more central, that you equip uh, uh, you know, the students with those tools, with those new skills. So you have to constantly change the curriculum in that way. I'm thinking AI and things like that play into it, right? right. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and we are here, obviously, at the heart of entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. innovation in, in a lot of ways. And I think people have sort of this romantic view of, you know, two guys in a garage, you know, creating something. But you focus a lot on corporate entrepreneurship as well. How do you build a student, essentially? How do you train someone to be an entrepreneur within a big organization? I think it combines both the openness to new ideas and the drive to create new value. Mm. And if you think about that, in every organization, a leader that has this drive to create new value is, is one of the most central things. At the same time, it has to be a leader that has empathy and compassion and humility. So the values become even more important as technology evolves, and we see it all around us now in, in, in current cases. That's such an interesting point that you bring that up, because obviously we spend so much time talking about big tech yeah. at, at this point, and you think about how this environment has changed, and the big questions that are facing mm -hmm. some of the leaders of technology companies, many of whom, you know, based miles from here. Social media, search companies. Absolutely, and, and I think that's, that's at the core of creating principal leaders, people that as they as they come here, the personal development and the community, it's not it's not a personal individual process. 
it's being part of a community that strives not to do uh, uh, only well, but really do 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 uh, do better for the world and do well for the world, not only for themselves. And it's so great that you talk about world global, right? Thinking about the whole world uh, at large, diversity is always important. Foreign students are very important to Stanford. You guys have a lot of folks here at the MBA program. It's getting tougher, tougher for some of those corporate visas to be processed. And I'm curious if you're seeing a slowdown in applicants as a result of that. So I, I think there's a global trend in, in applications uh, from global students to U.S. schools, and that's something I, I think... Slowing that, down? That, that, yeah, that's something that, that we see. Uh, I, I think in terms of uh, the opportunities, there's still the opportunities that our graduates have are still fantastic, and, and I think that the, the industry is looking for amazing talent, whether it's from overseas or, or from the U.S., uh, uh, the other part of it, I think the opportunities globally are now increasing all the time. And if we talk about entrepreneurship and in change in large organizations, that accelerated pace of change really means that, that our graduates are in high demand. So I've got to ask you one more question. That's about networking. It's something that people <laughs> talk about all the time, and it's actually something we mm-hmm. ranked business schools on. How do you encourage networking in a productive way that, that actually leads to successful relationships? I, I think network is a, is a great concept. And if you think about the network, um, the network is not only about its size, it's really about the strength of the connection. You can have a network, you know, Twitter is a network in some sense, but <laughs> but it's not where the relationships can be built and, and especially supportive. I think the strength of, of, of Stanford is that it's this openness and supporting community. It's the idea that we together create value, and that's what makes the network strong. One last question, and I'm curious about your graduates, your MBA graduates. Where do they want to go? It used to be traditionally finance and Wall Street. You guys are here and of course, Silicon Valley. Where are the most of them going? Just got about 40 seconds. So that's a fantastic question because it, it goes back to your first question about the changes that we see in management education. And what we see is that the traditional career path for MBAs, that has changed dramatically. Yeah. Right now, what we have is graduates that go into, you know, more than 300 different career wow. paths. And when you have that, it's really about preparing them with the core skills of leadership. It's being technically savvy. It's being, again, scientifically well-founded content. And at the same time, having the leadership skills, having the the team community building skills that are going to be applicable in each one of those career paths. And that was our conversation earlier today with Yossi Feinberg. He is Senior Associate Dean here at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, talking entrepreneurship and also talking about where they get jobs, which is really, Carol, the most important thing and a continuing theme. Right. And most of them still, the majority still go to the financial sector, but number two is the tech community. About 24% of graduates here at Stanford from the MBA school and MBA program, they go to technology. Live from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, taking care of business, indeed, one of the big features in the magazine this week, it is widely anticipated 
by MBAs, yes. by alumni, by faculty, and certainly administrators all across the United States. Caleb Solomon, the man in charge of Bloomberg's annual Business Week rankings, joins us back in our studio. Sorry you couldn't be with us here, Caleb. It's very nice uh, here at your number one school. But tell us how you got to the result you did. Well, first of all, thanks for rubbing that in, Jason. I appreciate that. I hope you're having a good time. <laughs> so um, the, we the, are. <laughs> so the the process we we changed uh, pretty much ended up changing everything this year. And the way we started trying to figure out how to change is that we went we went right to the sources who know most. So we we interviewed a pile of business schools, and then we checked in with students, alumni, and recruiters. And um, over the year. We have visited 15 business schools. We have talked to a bunch here at the New York headquarters. And overall, we've spoken to 43 business schools. And from them, we learned a lot about um, what matters most right now. And that's the key thing. We really tried to modernize what we're doing. Well, that's what's fascinating about this this year and the survey that you guys did, Caleb, because I really do feel like, you know, things are changing. We talk about industries transforming, and this survey has definitely transformed. You know, what is more on the minds of students, recruiters, and alumni? Because I know diversity plays into this. Uh, there's a lot of issues. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, among the many things we learned, there's no single thing. There's no single student. So many students have so many different interests. But mm-hmm. when you sum it up, we came up with four indexes this year that we think capture what most students care most about. And so number one, far and away, was compensation. You know, and it's business school, so that's not a surprise. But compensation <laughs> was number one. So we have a compensation <laughs> index. Networking is uh, another index. We have four indexes this year that are the foundation of our ranking. And networking makes sense. It's how do you connect. And as a student, it's how do you connect with other students? How do you connect with alumni? Uh, if you're an alumnus, it's what's, how strong is the alumni network? Does it help you get a next job, put you in position to, to learn something important? And from the recruiters, uh, 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 networking means how many doors does Stanford open, say, versus one of the other schools on our list? And apparently Stanford opens a lot a lot more doors than most other places. And then finally we have a learning index, and I think that's pretty straightforward, how well, how, well, how good is the education? And we have an entrepreneurship index, which I think you guys have been talking a lot about already. We have indeed. So, Caleb, just let's cut to the chase. Biggest surprise for you as you put all this together. You were knee-deep in this for months and months. What really jumped out at you? Well, some of the results were did surprise us. So, I mean, the fact that Stanford was number one, Wharton number two, Harvard three, MIT Sloan four, and Chicago Booth, you kind of expected that those five schools would be somewhere in the top ten, and that's, and that's how they ended up. But in our, each of our indexes, some of them came up with some surprises. So, again, entrepreneurship, Stanford came out number one, but number two on our list was uh, Eccles, the, the uh, school, business school in Salt Lake City. Babson came out number three. UC Berkeley uh, on your coast now, uh, number four. And MIT Sloan, not as much of a surprise at number five. So some of the Utah yeah. Babson were surprising to us. Likewise, on the learning yeah. index. What's the biggest similar. change? Sorry. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Please. Well, the, on the learning index, we also came up with some surprises. So uh, William and Mary in Virginia was number one. And again, Utah popped up as, as number two. So all of those were kind of were surprising to us. Well, why was that surprising? You know what I mean? Because, right, these aren't necessarily the business schools that we talk about um, day in and day out. I, I think that's right. And, and, and that's one of the – that was one of our starting points. That's one of the things we learned along the way is 
what we're trying to do is, I mean, we are ranking schools one through uh, 92, no doubt, and everybody cares about the ranking, including us, including alumni and schools. But if you're a student looking for a particular school, if you have a certain test score, for instance, and that test score doesn't get you into the top tier of schools, it's irrelevant what number right. one, two, and three are. Might, what might matter is what's number, what's, right. what are schools 44, 45, and 46, and we provide you a way to sort of see a pile of information and make all kinds of great comparisons between schools, no matter where on the list you're interested in. Great stuff. Caleb Solomon, thank you so much. Great issue, great survey. He's senior editor. Put this all together at Bloomberg News, back in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. And as we mentioned, he did really lead the revamp of this uh, survey of top business schools. Well, and one of the things I really like about it, too, is there is a lot online. We've been talking yes. to people out here about how you can so easily compare and contrast. And, you know, because this is a big life decision for people. You know, we heard that from a number of professors and students that we've been talking to. There's an opportunity cost to this. Right. It's a real investment. And that comparison tool online is really crucial because you can take a couple of schools, you can look at compensation, you can take a look at some different factors, and then determine what works best for you as a student and where you want to pursue your MBA program. I have to say it's also been amazing to me just to get the feedback as we've been doing this over the past couple of days from very notable alumni yeah. of Stanford and elsewhere. Watching, you know, listening. either saying, yeah, yeah, we're number one or ah, really wish we were number one. And they really do pay attention to this. There's a pride element, but there's also for, you know, senior executives, where are they going to shop for their talent? And that really matters. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We're here with Lindy Greer, and she is an associate professor of organizational behavior at Stanford. Uh, tell us a little bit about this program and the kind of things that you guys are teaching on a regular basis. So I'm a faculty in the organizational behavior group, which means we study the people side of business. And I think that's one area of research and teaching that Stanford's really known for, is how do we engage with people in the workplace? How do we truly create principal leaders? How do we manage diversity, create inclusive environments? Um, what do the students want to know? <laughs> um, they want to know how they themselves can be the best leader they could possibly be. And I think that's one of the things we're really good at, is helping them through that process of introspection and growth to really understand who you are and how you want to come across in a leadership position and change the world without digression. So, yeah. Lindy, take us inside the classroom, because what does that look yeah. like? What are those yeah. conversations mm-hmm. like? Because this is not the typical, mm-hmm. here's how to do a spreadsheet, here's <laughs> how to learn about discounted cash flow. This is yeah. really hard stuff. I think that our program is unique in how experiential our learning is. So I don't just stand up there and juggle balls in the air and talk about leadership. It's actually, we throw the students off the deep end. So I teach our introduction class in the MBA program in groups and teams. And as part of that class, each morning we make them do exercises where they crash and burn in a fairly painful manner. They make huge leadership mistakes. They choose the wrong person to lead in a certain situation or one of them micromanages when they should be actually empowering others. And it all happens to all the different teams in the class. But we have group therapy after. And they get to go home and think about that. It's like, oh, wow, like that's not how I thought it would come across in that situation. That's something that may, perhaps I need to work on. Well, if you think about leadership, it's changed so much, right? It used to be somebody up in a corner office. And in some companies, it's still that way. And then you have a lot of the search social media space, this tech startups where everybody's out in the open. Mm-hmm. Certainly at Bloomberg, everybody's kind mm-hmm. of out in the open. Talk to us about the transition and what mm-hmm. you guys are seeing more of. Yeah, so that's actually the heart of my research is on hierarchy and leadership. And so I think for a while there, the Valley was kind of leading the world to say, oh, it should all be flat, get rid of the leader or have the leader on the work floor and they don't actually need to have the corner office. But that also leads to a lot of chaos and disorganization like what happened with Holacracy at Zappos. 
And so my research now is how do you keep the hierarchy and not throw that out the window too, but actually have that structure of coordination, but to also empower at the same time. So I've been looking at startup leaders who flex, are able to go to the front of the room to kick off a meeting, give vision, give direction, and then go to the back of the room and say, I hired you because you're smarter than me. You all lead now. Well, just think about the real life scenarios, right? Especially in the tech or the startup world in terms of CEOs, right? There's lots to talk about. There's mm-hmm. got to be so much that's ripped from the headlines, yeah. right? I mean, you, exactly. people must be coming in and saying, this person at name a, a company mm-hmm. that's right down the street, <laughs> whether it's Google or mm-hmm. Facebook or maybe mm-hmm. a, another startup. So how do you integrate that in real time? several ways. One is trying to get back to the data because I think we have a lot of, of myths in the Valley about what is great leadership and people think oh just because you know Apple is such a great company it meant Steve Jobs is necessarily a great leader and like I researched the specific behaviors leaders do and being able to understand what Steve Jobs actually did that hurt the company as well as what helped. So we focus more on those data driven discussions and then I try to help them understand that what's going on in the world in the light of the actual data that we have on the science side. What surprises in terms mm-hmm. of what are the good behaviors in terms mm-hmm. of leaders especially in a time mm-hmm. like you guys are talking so much about leadership and I think it's rather timely right we keep saying this about mm-hmm. politics and mm-hmm. what's going on uh, globally whether it's politics or business but what are the key traits of really an effective leader mm-hmm. a vision so being able to bring people into the future with you and clearly articulate that you know for example Elon Musk is great at building this world that we all want to go join you know you can say other things about different behaviors but that visionary aspect is so critical to good leadership additionally it's about building the team Having people that are amazing, that are complimentary to you, which means having that self-awareness to know what you're not great at, and having people around you that you're better, that you empower to also then themselves lead in your organization. Those are the two biggest ones in my mind, is your ability to manage the team and to create goals for them. You talked about mistakes that mm-hmm. they make in, in <laughs> uh-huh. terms of the class and mistakes that mm-hmm. are made uh, maybe in the real mm-hmm. world. What's the biggest mistake people make as leaders? I think often being too confident in micromanaging or being too humble. And the best leaders are confident and humble. And for most every single person, that's a growth journey of understanding which side that you are more likely to fall prey to, experimenting, maybe going too far to the other side, and then eventually getting that sweet spot where you can stand in the front and lead with confidence, but have the ability to know what you don't know and go to the back and let those amazing people you hired lead in the situations where they know more than you do. So what's on the reading list? (laughs) I love all the work by Bob Sutton and Adam Grant, for example. It's a good boss, bad boss, or give and take. You know, Lindy, what I thought mm-hmm. was interesting, in our Bloomberg Business mm-hmm. Week survey, we had four indexes, but entrepreneurship mm-hmm. was a key one mm-hmm. in terms of ranking mm-hmm. the top business schools. And this is certainly something that you guys focus on here. But I am thinking about, you know, these leaders that you are developing, this idea that you can have a great entrepreneur who's an innovator, great idea, mm-hmm. but not necessarily a great leader. Mm-hmm. What do you teach on that front where they do have to maybe take a step mm-hmm. back? And we've seen this in many tech companies where you bring in an adult <laughs> into the mm-hmm. company to kind of run it while the innovator just runs on that two thoughts on that so my area of research is the psychology of startup teams and so you see that these are separate fields we studied leadership and we studied startups what i'm pushing on is you actually train these people to be better leaders leadership is created and learned as a skill set anybody can learn to be a great leader but it involves having the self-awareness to know if you're not that great in the beginning to get help to have the adult or someone else right. in the beginning but at the same time to be pushing on that's why an mba program like ours is a great value is it is something that we believe we can teach pretty well So is this a golden age of entrepreneurship? Mm -hmm. Only got about 30 seconds left. It's 
definitely a pivot point in a lot of different directions. I love the movements towards social impact, the increased awareness on the people side of startups. The vast number of reasons startups fail is actually people issues, not product. And both outside in terms of startup ideas that are coming in the HR space as well as our research, there's a lot more awareness about the psychology of startups. I think we're going to see bigger and better companies in the future because of this trend. Yeah, it's interesting, right, to bring more of this into Mm -hmm. um, the skills that are necessary Mm -hmm. for a leader. It makes Mm -hmm. sense, but it's not always done. But to to see you guys emphasize the uh, teaching. Lindy, thank you so much. Lindy Greer, she's an associate professor here at uh, Stanford School of Business. See you coming out of the Bank of America with a whole lot of loot. Ain't nobody's business but your own. Now you know that cocaine. All right. Well, we are, as Carol said, here in Stanford at Stanford, the Graduate School of Business. I learned today we are actually in Stanford, California. I was like, is it Palo Alto? Is it Miller Park? It's actually Stanford. Uh, Amitsuru is has a number of distinguished chairs. And I should note, amid a day of accolades, uh, recently won the Distinguished Teaching Award, and that is voters, voted on by students in the undergraduate and graduate schools of business. So a lot of awards getting thrown around here, uh, Amit. Thank you for joining us. Um, timely to speak with you, in part because we are 10 years on from the financial crisis. And the big question everybody wants the answer to is, when's the next one coming? And maybe more importantly, What's going to cause it? What does your research say? Uh, so thanks for having me. I think uh, the research says that it's, a, it's been a mixed bag in the last 10 years. Uh, we've had a lot of regulation. Uh, banks have responded to regulation. It has had some intended consequences, but there have been a lot of unintended consequences. And in my view, some of those unintended consequences have pushed us even back. How from so? where we, How so? we started. So just to give you an example, we regulated the banks very tightly, and as a result, they have done less of the risky activities, let's say, in the mortgage market that mm-hmm. we were worried about. But what has happened is that, that activity has migrated into shadow banking, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, which is, could be fine per se. Right. The problem is twofold there. One, shadow banks are being funded by banks themselves. So if something happens to shadow banks, the ripple effects will feed into the banking sector, into the real economy, just like we had before. And the second issue is, what are the shadow banks doing with all the activity that they do? They deposit it with the taxpayer-funded entities, Freddie and Fannie. So what we have done is we have still a mortgage market, which is as bloated, potentially, Uh, there are risks in the banking sector, and the other risks are with the taxpayers. You know, I mean, there's a really interesting story in this week's mm-hmm. edition of Bloomberg Business Week about private lending, yes. um, the private debt market, and so many names well known on Wall Street. As you say, not traditional banks who really have stepped in. They're making a lot of money doing this. How much do you worry about that specific aspect? So, uh, it's a very related uh, uh, comment because the problem with all these entities is not that it's a bad thing, but that we have no idea. And because of the interconnections with the banking sector, just looking at the banking sector and saying, hey, look, we are safer, uh, is not right. Because if something happens to these entities, the ripple effects are going to feed into the banking sector. In the mortgage sector, it's a totally different issue. We thought that we are going to get rid of too big to fail. Freddie and Fannie will go away. But hey, you know what? All the shadow banks are putting their assets on the balance sheets of taxpayers. I got to ask you, though, as a follow-up to this question, because one interesting angle to this private lending surge is private equity is getting into it. The well-known firms, right, whether it's KKR, whether it's Blackstone, and they we're talking about billions of dollars raising funds to do this. I mean, do they, could they potentially, if things go wrong, you know, be a bailout of the future that might need to be done? 
I mean, yeah, if you see these entities, they have become very big. So private equity has become very big in mortgage lending. We and have, I know I'm making a, a huge leap there, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to put that out there, but I do try to figure out no, no, this is absolutely this is absolutely right, that uh, if these entities become big, first question is, why are they big? Uh, research has clearly shown, and is showing as we speak, that as we have regulated banks, there has been a regulatory arbitrage with yeah. these entities right. who are not under regulation stepping in. Exactly. So you have Quicken Loans, largest mortgage lender now. You have private equity firms coming in the corporate lending side. Right. And the issue that we will face is that these entities will again become too big to fail and what are we going to and do And publicly then? held entities, right? Absolutely. And, this, and, and driven by sovereign wealth funds mm-hmm. and pension funds and endowments and, and whatnot. Uh, as you look at the regulatory landscape, obviously that's been a big point of this most recent U.S. administration is let's dial back some regulation, let's rethink Dodd-Frank, rethink Volcker, all of those things. How far down the line is that? How worrisome is that aspect of yeah, it? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Uh, just because we dialed in one way and it has not done all the right things that we were intending doesn't mean we completely need to dial back and go back to the pre-crisis era. That gave us the Great Recession. Uh, so we got to sit down. And I think one thing we got to do, at least based on what my research suggests, is that we got to be humble about all the different pieces, moving pieces here, and make the system you know, resilient to shocks because it's going to be really hard to predict where the next crisis comes. Once we know where the crisis is, it's easy to come up with a system. But But who leads the way on this? Does it have to be just got about 20 seconds? Is it government? Is it the industry? I think think the government and both parties really have to come and sit together and say that, look, next shock can be from somewhere and this is an important problem. We got to solve it. Well, you're number one now, so you've got to lead the way. Uh, Amit Saru, yeah. uh, professor here at the Stanford Graduate School, a business award-winning professor here at the number one business school in the nation. Thank you so much. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We are here with Rob Siegel at the Stanford uh, School of Business, and he is a lecturer in management. So great to have you here with us. I think about management in today's environment. I mean, you teach a bunch of courses mm-hmm. here. What are you teaching the student body right now? Well, right now I'm doing a variety of courses in both strategy and innovation, and in particular looking at how companies that are blending digital and physical products are having to combine the best of both worlds as we look at the next decade or two and how products and services are being delivered. But that means all companies, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's not only startups, which we're seeing a lot of here, but a lot of large companies are being impacted by the changes of data, the impact of software on their products, and how they have a relationship with their customers on an ongoing basis. And our students want to understand what do they need to do from a financing strategy, a product development strategy, a marketing strategy, how do they deal with government, because even the small companies now have to deal with these larger issues, especially as you deal with innovation in tech, as well as larger industrial organizations. Clearly, one of the draws for students who are coming to any business school is who's going to be teaching them? What are they going to be learning? One of the things that Stanford is really focused on is having practitioners come in. You're a practitioner yourself, but you're team teaching with some pretty notable people as well. The great thing about Stanford is you get these amazing people who will come here, and the students are incredible. So I do one class called The Industrialist Dilemma with Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box, and Max Vessel from SAP. I also do a class systems leadership with Jeff Immelt, the former CEO of GE, where I used to work. And then also there are a variety of classes that we do where you get a combination of practitioners 
years with lecturers uh, and uh, tenure line faculty. So you get a great foundation of both the academic work as well as what's it like in the real world and how do you apply this when you're working in a commercial setting. And one of my favorite things about your bio is you're an alum yourself. (laughs) And one of the things you got to do was learn from Andy Grove and ended up working on his book, I mean, which is a seminal work in its own right. Andy Grove of Intel, of course. So Andy was one of the first lecturers to come to the Graduate School of Business, and he taught with Robert Bergelman, who is still here as a faculty member and who I teach with. And I actually went to work for Intel when I graduated 25 years ago. And Andy was just an amazing person. And we had a situation where he decided to write the book, Only the Paranoid Survive, and I did his research. And it was really kind of great because Andy was really a teacher. Like, he really worked hard to teach people, and he wrote books for the purpose of trying to spread that knowledge to a broader audience. Rob, you got to talk about, you said to us earlier, you're what, fifth generation in terms of your family here in California. Um, You know, you're you're looking at, you're a venture capitalist today. Tell me about the transformation that you've seen in Silicon Valley. Well, it used to be extremely technical, right? You know, the people who really started the Valley, you know, three, four, five decades ago, Hewlett Packard came out of here from Terman, out of the the Terman Building and Engineering School. And then with the first internet wave, you've got a transition to what we think of as the internet and a lot of, you know, mobile apps. And we had a tremendous amount of, you know, SaaS software. It came more B2C. And now we're seeing a transition more to kind of a combination of B2B and B2C, business to business and business to consumer, where people are having to think about how are they going to be successful uh, in both large small companies and on a global basis. The, the Stanford is much more global in our curriculum and our staff and our students much more than we were even 25 years ago when I was a student here. One of the things that has really struck, I think, both of us as we've talked to people is this idea of teaching principled leadership. Right. It feels yeah. like very of the moment mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, especially coming from the East Coast. Uh, what do you... And coming off the midterm. How do you do that? Like, I mean, it mm-hmm. sounds nice, but how do you actually put that into practice? Well, I think there are two parts to it. The first is the curriculum has the what I'll call the fundamentals, but there's also a part of leadership and what does it mean to follow you as a leader. And I'll often talk in class about being a Stanford leader and what's the responsibility that comes with that. Yesterday we had Tim Hotkiss, the CEO of Deutsche Telekom, uh, in our class, and he was talking about, you know, it's, it's a utility, right? Just communication, so across the country and across the world. If you're sitting in that chair as a CXO, not only do you have to do technological innovation, but how do you think about your responsibility to society? And I think as Silicon Valley, which used to historically have a libertarian approach, especially as we go into these more industrial Mm -hmm. businesses or these mobility businesses. You deal with life and death issues and you have to think about those issues and figure out how you're going to work with government. So in the old days, it was like, yeah, you all stay on the East Coast and we're fine here on the West Coast. You can't do that anymore. Especially with all this data floating around, right? We've got to figure out the oversight that works uh, without stifling innovation. Last question. You're a venture capitalist as Uh well. He wears so many different hats. What are the interesting areas that you're investing in? So we're at a real interesting transition point in technology. I would argue that the the energy we saw around mobile and around SaaS software is now mainstream. And so the next wave, no one really knows what's coming. We're seeing a lot of interesting things at MyFund exceed on machine learning and how that's applied to specific verticals. It could be anything from the beauty space to the pharmaceutical space to financial services to education. And so we're seeing a lot of what I would call non-traditional areas take advantage of technology and we're trying to follow great entrepreneurs going into those areas. Rob Siegel, lecturer here at Stanford uh, Graduate School of Business, venture capitalist,
So while we are sort of reveling in the fact that we're at a very cool academic institution, there is some work going on here at Stanford that is not just of the moment, like almost of the second. And uh, we're joined by someone working very much on the front lines of some of the biggest issues facing Silicon Valley right now. Uh, Michal Kaczynski, he's assistant professor of organizational behavior. He's studying psychometrics. And that's where I want to start. What does that mean? Uh, That's uh, psychological measurement, essentially. It's a science of trying to estimate people's psychological traits, such as personality, intelligence, political views, and so on. Why is this so important? Or I think about, wow, it is important, and I think about the social media space, right? Are they able to learn a lot about us because of... Of course. So it's very important, though. Perhaps most of the professors that study something would tell you, you know, that this... Uh, Whatever they're doing exactly is the most important, the most important thing, right? So the thing I'm studying is absolutely the most important <laughs> thing we're studying here at the GSB. And it's important because if you can measure someone's psychological traits, you can match them with a career they will enjoy. You can match them with a job at which they will excel. You can match them with a product that they will want to buy. But also you can match them with a manipulation technique that you can use to well, change your mind. That's what, and my stupid question, because of course we know they're collecting a lot of data and they can make decisions, but this takes it me out to a whole other level. A little creepy, no? It's, uh, well, that is scary to some extent. So in the past, if you wanted to understand a human being, you had to spend a lot of time with them. Uh, or you had to use a, a complicated uh, psychological questionnaire that took you know hours to fill in. Now what you can do is just to look at someone's digital footprints using an algorithm, and you can use it for millions of people at time, and uh, get their scores, their psychological profile, that, as some of my results show, are more accurate than what their own spouse would achieve. So let's talk about that because you had some seminal research back in 2015 that actually led Facebook to change the way it dealt with its privacy settings. And and it came from the fact that just by seeing what people liked, what they pressed that little thumbs up button, you could know intimate things about them. How is that possible? Well, it turns out that uh, our behavior is not random. What we do is related to our psychological traits. It's related to where we grew up. It's related to how we were raised. It's related to our education. And it's pretty clear. It's pretty intuitive. But then it turns out that even those little tiny bits of behavior, like liking something on Facebook, it's not entirely random. Uh, If you have particular political views, you are more likely to click like on a given picture. And now... If you look just at one like, it's not extremely revealing. But what algorithms can do, they can look at hundreds or thousands or millions of little tiny digital footprints uh, at once and then uh, draw very accurate uh, conclusions. So is this more useful in the future or is it more worrisome in the future? Well, it's both. Most of our technologies, most of the technologies that uh, Homo sapiens have uh, come up with uh, are both extremely useful and can be potentially dangerous. And I think that what we are trying to achieve here is to try to understand those technologies, understand the benefits that they can offer us, and also try to manage the risks that uh, they're bringing. So looking around here, we're in the heart of Silicon Valley, and we do seem to be at a very important moment where all of us as humans and as consumers are rethinking our relationship with social media. There's been a lot written about this, Mm -hmm. even about the fact that 
people here in Silicon Valley more than any are talking to their kids about how they should be engaging with screens, how they should be engaging in social media. What happens from here? What happens next? Well, I think that as we have done in the past, we'll just figure it out. And we need to talk about this. We need to uh, focus on the risks. Uh, but, of course, we shouldn't just throw those technologies away. Look, of course, Facebook, Google, uh, other modern uh, digital communication, all of those technologies change the environment. They offer us tremendous advantages, uh, but also uh, pose some risks. And I think that as long as we try to solve those risks, manage those risks, instead of just scaremongering and saying, well, Facebook is bad, just shut down your profile, that's silly. Facebook is wonderful. It's a way of connecting with your friends and staying and, and staying updated. Uh, there are some risks associated with it as well, and let's try to manage those. And we have just got about 20 seconds. So we do need additional oversight to some extent, right? These are new industries. They're still new industries, whether it's search and, search and social, right? But there needs to be some kind of oversight at some point. That's very true. And our society now, our politicians, try to push this responsibility on the industry. They demand that Facebook and Google self-regulate themselves. They demand that those companies censor the communication information that is posted there. And I think this is absolutely outrageous, actually. Time for government to get involved? Uh, time for social institutions and societies to get involved into discussion of this kind. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Michał Kaczynski, he's Assistant Professor of Organizational Behavior here at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. So we do want to talk a little bit about opportunities, specifically what's known as opportunity zones uh, and the importance of them and cultivating them and how to tie it back into corporate tax policy. We have the perfect person to do this uh, with. Becky Lester, Rebecca Lester, is here with us, Stanford Graduate School of Business professor in the accounting uh, group, and uh, she's joining us here on site. We're at your home, actually. Yeah, so we're hanging out you. with her, so that's why we're calling her Becky. She's just chilling with us we're here so at Stanford. In with her. Yeah. Talk to us about opportunity zones. For those who might not sure. know exactly what they are, talk to us about that. Sure. So this is an incentive that was part of the most recent tax reform bill in, in December of 2017. Um, and it was an incentive that was really encouraged by this group, the Economic Innovation Group in Washington, D.C. Um, the idea behind it is to encourage investors. Um, most people think about this in an individual context, but companies could participate as well, uh, freeing up some of their capital gains that they have held. So if they have some stock that's appreciated, for example, in value, and then rolling those gains into low-income communities around the United States. And so as you teach your students about mm -hmm. this and research with your students about mm -hmm. this, it does feel very of the moment yes. I mean, in, in a sense yes. that, you know, what we hear from your colleagues, from students mm -hmm. that, that we talk to, and even through this survey is a lot more search for sort of meaningful work, yes. understanding more holistically how business and government uh, work together. What do you hear back from your students about yes. what they want to do and how they want to apply this? So interestingly, I heard about this incentive primarily from students. So a lot of my research is focused on corporate tax incentives. And to be honest, I was really more interested or following other parts of the tax reform bill. Um, and as the kind of some head of the EIG and other people talked about, this provision was snuck in a little bit at the last minute. So um, I wasn't as focused on it. I heard about it from two of our MBA students who had research this. We're very interested in um, thinking about a new incentive from an impact perspective, but possibly also from a commercial perspective entering the marketplace. 
And so they were directed to come find me through some of our colleagues and ended up using that as a way for using some research or trying to think about learning about this policy for um, writing up a kind of a short article as a way for all three of us to learn about this. This is really cool. But I do think about we're at a time where we're trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what has the most economic or market impact, right? What kind of policies really make a difference? Especially when right now we're talking in government, the prospect of having some kind of infrastructure spending. Tell us about what kind of impact this, you know, investing in opportunity zones, what does it do? Yeah, so... uh, one of the reasons I'm really interested in this policy is because it has the ability to affect uh, locations in all 50 states. So in every state, there are a certain number of tracks that are designated census tracks that can receive this opportunity zone investment. And those tracks are in red states, they're in blue states, they're in urban locations, they're in rural locations. So this policy has a, the possibility of driving a lot of investment into places that haven't seen investment in a long time. And so from I, I think from that perspective, there are a lot of potential social gains that can be uh, that can you know come from this. It's not just yeah. social though; it's economic, it's, right? It's yes. The idea oh. is that this is kind of a free market type mm-hmm. uh, way to approach some of these problems that we have. So let investors put their money where they want it to go, um, and but give them some tax incentive, tax incentive to potentially move it into areas where it hasn't been before. I, I want to talk a little bit, if we can, about mm-hmm. sort of how you teach because you're a, yes. a former practitioner. You yes. were an accountant, yes. you know, like a real working accountant. Yes. And now you know you're <laughs> yes. more ivory tower. I'm just yes. kidding. <laughs> Um, but it does yes. feel like, you know, one of the key things yes. we've heard here at Stanford is this mm-hmm. marriage of sort of practical uh, and theoretical. Yes. So what types of jobs do you think your students will have going forward, mm-hmm. maybe that were different from, from what you were doing? Mm. Um, just in the in the sense, like more broadly kind yeah. of in thinking. Uh, you know, I think what I observe from students is that they are very interested in this uh, social piece mm-hmm. of it, whether it's through whether it's directly by trying to do something that's more of a social impact, or whether it's indirect by trying to um, start a company that addresses a need in a in a part of the world that's a you know underserved or um, a need that is quite strong, like, for example, in Africa and other types of emerging markets. You know, I want to go back to Opportunity Zones for a second, because I think Opportunity Zones, and I think, okay, I've seen them, you know, in my neighborhood where, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to revitalize an urban area, and they bring in shopping Mm -hmm. and things like that Mm -hmm. and give tax benefits. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the the great model? Or think about what's going on in Detroit. Mm -hmm. We have Shinola and other companies that are really trying to create a viable, long-standing, you know, economy through different ways. Yes. What's the, what's the mo- model that you really like look towards? So I think that, you know, I, to be honest, I'll, I'll say that there's more questions around this incentive than anything mm-hmm. um, in the sense of it is a free market way to, to drive investment, but I think there's a lot of questions about will it actually improve the local communities? Um, so people have thought about this incentive from two perspectives. Basically, what is success? And some people would say just having investors participate is success. Yeah, right. But investors could participate without actually having much positive spillover on the local communities. And I think that's one of the primary concerns that I have and that other people have with this policy. Now, on the flip side, we could see money going to places where it hasn't been before, right. places like you're talking about Detroit, or I've seen um, some really interesting information put together by uh, South Bend, Indiana, or by the state of Colorado. And so, you know, ideally, if those, those governments can continue to participate and really attract investors to discrete investment opportunities, we could potentially see some really important pill- and positive spillovers. And there. it would be nice to see some of those depressed economic areas mm-hmm. really help kind of the folks in that area mm-hmm. and raise them up. Becky, great stuff. 
enough. And I do yeah. want to point out that the NBA site Poets and Quants named <laughs> Becky Lester as one of the best 40 under 40 professors in 2018. So yes. congratulations. Thank you very much. Thanks. Really we're appreciate just, it. We're just long on awards here. <laughs> it's almost like you guys, like, I don't know, the number one business school in the country with the absolute best professors. I want to go back to school. Listen, I'm I not really going home. do. This is amazing. We've learned so much today, and it's really been yeah. uh, a, a really cool way to uh, to spend a day hearing from all these uh, smart folks. And I feel like if you want to think about the trends that everybody's going to be talking about in the years to come, you've got to go to the universities. You've got to go to the schools like Stanford to really find out what the professors and the student body are talking about. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.